Hello and welcome to CEO Stories, the podcast where we explore the journeys and advice of the region's leading and up and coming CEOs. I'm Henrietta Brearley, the Chief Executive of the Greater Birmingham Chambers of Commerce. And today I'm joined with some, by someone with a pretty unique perspective, I think it's fair to say, on leadership. It's Ian Reid, Chief Executive of the Birmingham 2022 Commonwealth Games. Hello, Ian. Hello, Henrietta. Great to be on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, I think it's pretty safe to say that everyone listening to this podcast is going to know what the Commonwealth Games was. But what they might be less familiar with is the organising committee. So do you want to start by just telling us a little bit about you and the organising committee? Sure. So um, I'm actually a chartered accountant by trade. So um, quite a traditional training. I uh, I trained in an audit firm and, uh, and went through that kind of general process and um, found myself after a, a few years in the in the world of major events, and primarily because um, I, I have a huge passion for sport. Um, I had an opportunity up in Scotland to get involved, um, and a lot of my career sort of moved away from the kind of audit environment and into much more project type work. So I worked for quite a while in infrastructure advisory type projects. Um, so found myself in sport, found myself uh, initially working in the Commonwealth Games as the CFO um, when they were in Glasgow. Um, and then was fortunate enough to be offered the opportunity to lead um, the organising committee for Birmingham 2022. And just to give listeners a little bit of background as to how, how that works. So traditionally, uh, a Games are awarded um, by an overarching um, brand owner. So in the Commonwealth Games case, that would be the Commonwealth Games Federation. So they're an organisation that exists in perpetuity and um, awards those games every four years. But when they're awarded, a lot of infrastructure is then set up within the host city. So one of the main delivery vehicles being the organising committee who I lead. So, um, you know, we, we, if you think about it, had, all, had I suppose, responsibility for everything to do with organising the event. So what we were was the um, organisation who were building infrastructure for the Games. So in the case of Birmingham, the Sandwell Aquatic Centre or the big redevelopment of Alexander Stadium, those were done by the local authorities. But everything to do with um, those 11 days of sport and the cultural festival around them and the ceremonies sits with the organising committee. So um, we're very much split into functions that support those Games. So that could be everything from the temporary infrastructure, the power for the Games, catering, the logistics, the sports side of things, obviously, and then a lot of functions that are um, more common across all organisations. So marketing the games, the sponsorship, um, all the back of house functions, and of course, the ceremonies and cultural side um, as well. So quite a big operation, but an organising committee is a very, it's a very strange vehicle in so much as it's, it's, it's a special purpose organisation. So it starts from scratch. It builds to one of the largest uh, companies in the city for a short period of time, and then it dissolves back to nothing, which is um, what I'm working on um, as we speak at the moment. So you get this incredible life cycle of an organisation uh, in a very short period of time. Like I say, and a huge undertaking across lots of different facets that are pretty unique to that sort of major sporting event world. But before we get back to talking a little bit more about the Commonwealth Games, when you look back over your career, that journey from accountancy through to major sporting events, are there any particular moments that you go, that was a defining moment, that was a moment that really shaped the direction of your career? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I'm always reasonably honest talking about this, and I, I probably ended up in the world of accountancy more, more through, um, I was going to say necessity, that's probably the wrong word, but more through the fact that I was I was looking to keep my options open and went down quite a traditional route rather than having a real passion for it. Um, you know, that said, I think I've, uh, you know, I've really benefited from the kind of rounded education and rounded experience that, that accountancy brings. But in terms of that defining moment of my career, you know, I, I went through that sort of traditional training, as I mentioned earlier, um, and, and enjoyed the work, but never felt that it was, as I said, I was really passionate about it. And then the opportunity to get into sport actually came just purely coincidentally when I was working on a client um, on a big infrastructure project and I saw an advert for um, a senior finance role within the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow um, and, and looked at the job specification and thought, well, this is very relevant to me. It's a big project. It's obviously a finance-based role. But much more than that, it really drove my thinking around, you know what, this is a point in my career where um, I'm passionate about sport. I'll watch any sport. I love it. 
uh, and it really kind of flicked a switch for me around the importance of your, you know, really enjoying your work and and uh, and feeling um, really connected to that. So, you know, I was invested a huge amount of time and sort of sweated my network to give myself the best opportunity to get that role, and um, given that kind of change in thinking, and it was the best move I ever made. You know, it's. Um, it's it's really changed my my enjoyment of work in my career, the opportunities it is bringing me, the variety of work that I've been able to do as well. So, you know, in terms of that general learning, and, and you hear it a lot, but people talk about work and life and work life balance as if the two things are separate. And you know, I'm very much signed up to that philosophy of your your work is your life to a large proportion in terms of the time you commit to it. So therefore, making sure that you're working in something that that you genuinely enjoy, you feel you can make a difference, you're passionate about, and uh, it certainly makes getting out of bed in the morning a, a lot easier if you, if you end up in a role that that you can tick those boxes. That certainly comes across loud and clear, just how passionate you are about working for the Commonwealth Games. And I, I wonder if we could go right back to the start of your journey, because um, I always find this fascinating, hearing what my guests did as their first ever job. So can you remember what your first ever job was? Yeah, def- definitely. I was a I was a traditional shelf stacker in a supermarket. I think probably aged fifteen, sixteen. I think, um, as we all did about that point in life, eh? trying to get some experience and trying to get some money together um, to to go out and various things. So, you know, and and, and you do look back um, and, and and think about what you learn and and your first introduction into the working environment and you know working in I suppose an entry level role as we all do at that stage in our careers and. Uh, understanding the culture of the organisation, customer service, what goes on behind the scenes, all of that's hugely valuable Um, and and shapes, um, I think, some of your initial kind of thinking around business and also that point I made earlier about what what you want to do, perhaps. Um, So that was definitely the first job, I suppose, as I mentioned, the first kind of professional job post-university was was kind of straight into that accountancy world. And um, that's a challenging time as well in so much as, that you, you are balancing what is quite a heavy workload and quite a demanding job with um, also continuing your studies and trying to get professional qualifications. So that, I think, in terms of um, both level of work, but also um, experience was probably the most pivotal point in, in my career in terms of learning so much. And, you know, when you're training as an accountant, or I'm sure it's the same as a lawyer or some of these other professions, you're exposed to a huge variety of, of businesses. So I do... Whilst you learn a bit in the studies, I think you definitely learn a hell of a lot more when you're just out and about and talking to some incredible people um, and working on perhaps different clients every two or three weeks. So, um, you know, that three years um, definitely as well, but I think equipped me well for the kind of future working environment. I'm definitely seeing those themes of uh, people, um, working collaboratively with people, collaboratively even with people, um, and managing multiple deadlines under time pressure, which I think can only have come in handy <laughs> in these later stages of your career. Um, do you want to tell me a little bit how about your first experience with the Commonwealth Games with Glasgow? Yeah, so I um, I joined the organising committee in Glasgow, I think late 2007, early 2008, and we'll probably come on and talk a little bit later about um, the, the different time scales that we had for Birmingham. But at that point with Glasgow, that was probably six and a half years before before the event. And you normally at that time had a kind of seven-year planning cycle. So, yeah, I probably joined as employee number six or seven. Um, and and I was, you know, we can talk about similar themes in Birmingham, but it's very much a startup environment at that point. So um, it was a little bit of a learning um, experience for me because I think a lot of my work up until that point had been within big organisations that had significant support, the infrastructure was already in place. And this was a role very much coming into um, a finance department that didn't really exist. There were no systems. Um, we were, I think I was handed a whole lot of receipts and checks and a, and a plastic bag when I started. And it was, you know, it was very much roll your sleeves up. And um, whilst I had a reasonably senior title, I had no team and I was expected to do everything. So... Um, again, great learning experience, but perhaps not um, at, at the time, not what I expected um, going into this kind of what I thought would be an exciting and uplifting sporting environment. So, uh, as I say, it was very much desk based and, and startup. But again, um, that environment makes you makes you learn. You have to find out um, what you need to do. And um, we had some great people in similar circumstances in that organisation at the time doing similar things. So. Um, so that that was re- really really helpful, 
um, in terms of kind of accelerating my learning. And then over the you know the, the seven years of that job, um, very similar to what I described earlier in terms of the life cycle of the company, huge amounts of change, new people starting all of the time, um, the culture moving and changing as well in that journey. Um, you really started to learn the, the requirement and the, and the power of effective stakeholder management. There's so many other organizations involved in these events, all doing different things. And, um, you know, in Glasgow, I always reflect and say, I think that worked well sometimes, but other times there were some real challenges with some of the stakeholders in terms of disagreements and approach. And, and when you get into that environment, um, as I say, those kind of softer skills are, are really important in terms of relationships, et cetera. Um, but again, I suppose very similar to Birmingham in so much as at that point, a city that very much was looking to the games um, to increase its international profile, to support its regeneration, to drive some economic um, benefit. And again, hugely successful event at the end of that. Um, obviously, I was doing a different job um, in, in Glasgow. So a lot of what I did was more behind the scenes type work more traditional corporate work, um, quite different from the job that I did in Birmingham, but at the same time still being on that senior management team. So understanding some of those um, some of those wider challenges and some of the challenges that, that came towards me in, in, in the chief exec role, chief exec role for Birmingham, I sort of observed more in Glasgow and, and, and could get an understanding of them. And I think with any big project, but in particular the games, when the event comes to the end, obviously you're delighted it's gone so well and it, and it really did in Glasgow. However, you always look back and think on that learning journey, you know, what, what would I have done differently and where could, I, uh, where could I make things a bit better? And that was one of the drivers, I think, when the opportunity came um, to, to apply for the role in Birmingham um, that, you know, I, I wanted another go at it. I wanted a, a different role, but also I wanted to kind of pick up all those things that I'd learned and make sure that I could, you know, that I could hopefully improve things as I came into the room um, in Birmingham. So when did that opportunity in Birmingham come onto your radar? And, and was it that no-brainer that, yes, this is the natural next step? Or did you have a little bit of a think about it first? Well, I, I you know, passionately, um, I, I wanted to I wanted to do it. Part, part of the challenge was actually was more practical and, and logistical. So to give you a little bit of background, I... I left Glasgow 2014 um, in the start of 2015. So almost actually a similar period to where we now are with Birmingham, having uh, dissolved that organization. And I ended up going back into the private sector and uh, an opportunity came my way post Glasgow um, with one of the sponsors of Glasgow 2014, actually a, a FMCG business, a soft drinks business called AG Bar, who perhaps are most famous in Scotland, well, nationally for, for um, manufacturing the, the drink iron brew, but their portfolio was much wider than that and includes Strathmore Water and Rubicon and a whole variety of brands. But at the time, what happened was they, they approached me because they had purchased um, a cocktail business of all things. So a company called Funkin' Cocktails, who continue to this day and are very successful. And effectively, they make a lot of the high-end syrups and mixers that you'd find in bars, but now kind of supermarket pre-mixed cocktails um, as well. And uh, I got to know that business in terms of the group well, um, and they bought this, um, as I say, cocktail business, and we're looking for people to come in, go onto the board of that, support its integration into the into the wider group. Um, so coming out of the game was quite an exciting opportunity. It's something a bit different for me. There was no sport kind of roles that were obvious at the time. Um, so I went to AG Bar, who were a great business, um, thoroughly enjoyed my time there, um, and sort of three years since from from moving there, I had no um, you know no desire to leave. I think I um, had had sort of cemented myself in there. I thought thought there were good prospects in terms of longer term career. It was relatively close to home, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so I wasn't even looking for another job. And then I got a phone call. Um, this would be when probably early 2018 and um, the games had just been awarded to Birmingham at the end of 2017 and the UK government were looking to um, you know start up the organizing committee in Birmingham and the reason they called me I think through some referrals probably via the federation was that I'd done a lot of that startup stuff um, with Glasgow and therefore they, they, they were looking for someone to come in just for six months to do a kind of interim CEO 
role uh, and very much get the thing moving uh, at pace because, as we mentioned earlier, the games had been awarded quite a bit later than was normally the case. Um, originally awarded to Durban uh, and then re-awarded to, to Birmingham after a process. So we only had this four and a bit years planning window compared to that seven years that I referred to earlier in Glasgow. So I was now sitting in Scotland uh, with a role relatively close to home, but an opportunity to go into um, an organisation at startup phase again into an event which um, I know is incredible. But at that time, a city I didn't know well at all in Birmingham. Um, so I had to think about it long and hard, had to chat with, with family as well about how it would work. And, and, and ultimately, without getting into too much detail, the, the lure of coming back into major events and in particular, um, the senior opportunity um, was just too much. So, so gave up that permanent role at the time, um, travelled to travelled to Birmingham for a six months uh, contract, and uh, and the kind of rest is history. From there, I ended up you got a huge huge welcome in the city. Loved the city from from very early on, um, and then that interim role ended up evolving into uh, into a more permanent role. So tell me a little bit about that sort of journey, that evolution of the organising committee. When you started, was it very much like it had been in Glasgow, back to startup scale? Yes, very much so. Um, I think the only difference was, which was very helpful, was that the, the Federation themselves, um, they had restructured, um, recognising the real challenges of starting organising committees from completely from scratch again, excuse me, with no knowledge, with no systems, etc. So they had set up their own subsidiary called CGF Partnerships or CGFP. And the whole rationale of that was so that there was some existing expertise that could roll from games to games in terms of people, but also going forward, they could roll across a lot of the systems that we use so that they weren't having to be procured again and you weren't having to start over. So this was the first games that was under this new model. So what it meant was whilst I landed in Birmingham as the first um, employee of the organising committee. In fact, there were probably a dozen or so people that the Federation had employed who you know, are now over in Australia at the next Games and will continue in that journey, um, but were able to work with me um, to, to get a lot of those systems set up, to start the recruitment, um, to get some of the budgets put in place. And they were all experienced people who had worked on events in the past. So we were able to start the journey um, a lot quicker, I think, than we were in Glasgow, where most of the employees in Glasgow were new to the events world, were local people, and were all themselves trying to get up to speed with what was required and what was delivered, uh, what was needing to be delivered, sorry. So I myself had come in with some experience, obviously, and then there was these other dozen or so people. So that made life a little bit easier, but the general environment was exactly as I described in Glasgow. You know, nothing was in place, all had to be built. Um, and, and alongside us, of course, there was a huge amount of work required to get those infrastructure projects running as well. So, you know, Sandwell were having to mobilise, Birmingham City Council were having to mobilise, the government were having to put their own infrastructure in place in terms of funding and assurance. Um, you know, the combined authority, transport for West Midlands, the police, others, the, everybody was starting to mobilise and realising that they had to mobilise quickly. And then you're having to build all the governance and the integration model that goes around that as well. So there was a lot of work to do early on, um, but but it was clear within the first few months that the individuals involved were all very collaborative and already all very much had a can-do attitude and I think all recognised the opportunity. So the great thing about these games is perhaps that, that it's not always found in other projects is you tend to find that multi-agency approach works very well because people are all clear about the same objective um, they understand that you one go at this so you you can't get it wrong so things happen quicker I think collaboration is much more effective um, and that started very very early on in, in, in Birmingham so yeah that was that was very much a start-up phase but we, we mobilized quickly and then after a few months you start to get into a rhythm. So you're starting to get into that rhythm you're already managing through one fairly unique challenge which was the the shortened time frame for this Commonwealth Games and then one or two more came along didn't they in terms of COVID-19 pandemic and then massive recruitment challenges and people shortages on the other side so do you want to tell me a little bit about how you managed through that? Yeah I mean it was, it was probably the last thing we needed in so much as we we, we already had the challenge of time um, and you know things generally were going going well we had a lot to do but I think we were all confident we now had the people 
uh, or the core team of people in place and the structures to support that. But yes, as you say, of course, things change drastically. And I'm just thinking back to timeline. So, you know, I started probably April, March, April 18, and had that first probably um, 18 months to two years of that, that startup phase. And, um, and then probably in, when was lockdown one, probably about February, March 2020, wasn't it, if I recall correctly? And and that was that that was hugely uncertain for us. But I think right at that period, like most other businesses, we 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 assumed this was a short term blip, um, and and uh, and probably never realised the severity of it at the time. But obviously, after a month or two, um, started to realise we had to plan for for a whole raft of scenarios and challenges. So, to give you some context, I think around lockdown one, we went into um, into that with about seventy people. And we probably had about 20 or so from that CGFT, uh, CGFP team over and above it. So still a relatively small team in terms of where we would end up being um, come games time. But we, but on that basis, we were just going into the period of our operation where we would be recruiting much more rapidly. So kind of two years out from the games, you start to really see that shift uh, in, in the upward trend of recruitment. So we, we're sitting there now, um, having shifted to home working, starting to think about you know how do we do effective interviews how do we integrate people how do we do onboarding how do we do all of that training requirements all of these issues that all businesses have what we probably just had on a much greater scale because of the size of organization we were moving to but all of that having to be done remotely whilst at the same time you're trying to keep people in a positive mindset um you know, we're, we're trying to make sure we're liaising closely with the other agencies about what's the impact on the capital projects? Can people still get on site? Um, and of course, ultimately, we moved to a different model in the, in the village as a result of that. Um, and, and then, of course, um, you're, you're, trying to, you're trying to think about what's the overall impact on some of the practical things in the game. So, for example, right at that time, there was quite a lot happening in terms of the wider sporting landscape. And those events that were much closer to happening in 2020 or in 2021, and then thinking about moving their dates to buy themselves further time. So a whole lot of events were moving to 2022 because people saw that as the year that potentially they would get back to normality. So we're getting these phone calls from World Athletics Championships, from uh, Women's Euros Championships, from football, which was in the UK, um, from, from the European Championships, which were taking place at similar time, all starting to play about with dates. And of course, you move one event's dates and you've got to try and avoid clashing with others. So all of that was happening um, as well. And then we're asking the team to try and build what does this model look like for COVID for the game? So what's our scenarios? What's our decision points? Um, and of course, you start you start to worry because, you know, we invested so much time and you know the opportunity from these events, but it would look so different if you ended up in a landscape where perhaps you had no spectators or, or, or whatever those scenarios were. So it was a, it was a hugely challenging time. Um, and you mentioned culture earlier. You know, it's one of the things about an organizing committee is um, it perhaps relies on physical integration, I think, much more than most organizations because what you need is people that genuinely trust and know people from other functions. So, you know, when something goes wrong at games time, which it always does, you, you want your people to know who to pick the phone up to, who can deliver, who can sort problems for them from all these other functions. And to be frank, a lot of those relationships happen naturally through people knowing each other in the office, those water cooler discussions, those, those you know, post-work pub trips or, or, or team building events, et cetera, et cetera. All of that was put on hold. So we very much found that you ended up in a position whereby that the, the, the kind of culture within teams was very strong and people had invested a lot in doing the weekly catch-ups or the Zoom quizzes and all of this kind of stuff within their own teams. But that kind of horizontal integration was definitely suffering and, and that led to, you know, some of the challenges that we as a lot of businesses did around how do we bring people back to the office with some of them having a huge appetite to do that and others wanted to continue to work from home and we didn't think that was going to be effective for us. So all, all of that led to yeah, a really, really difficult period in, in, in the run-up to uh, in the run-up to the games in 22. And how did you navigate that? Was there anything that you really learned and took away from that experience about building organizational culture? Yeah, I think I think the first thing in particular in our specific environment is 
that you know we 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 spend a lot of time at interview explaining to people what we do and, and what the environment's like and to be frank you you really need most of our roles you really need people who enjoy and thrive on change um but at the same time we were operating in a very difficult labor market so um, in some roles it was it was very difficult to find anyone to even fill them so it definitely um it definitely laid bare those issues where we had some employees that had come on weren't people who were comfortable with change and 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 you know the covid and uncertainty came along and, and really um made life i think quite difficult for some of our employees and we definitely had a higher attrition level um that, that than ideally we we would have wanted because of all of those issues so i think definitely as a learning from that going back to when you're bringing your team on investing huge amounts of time and explaining to them not so much you know we i think we always as recruiters think about we just want to get the best people and and, and actually taking the time to make sure the role's right for that person is is just as important and you know we, we i think we got there towards the end but with our rapid recruitment perhaps some of that recruitment at the start of that big upscaling point we were just more process driven and more trying to get people in. Um, but as I say, I think towards the back end, recognizing some of the challenges that brought, really, really being honest with people who might have the best CVs in the world, but saying to them, look, this is what it's going to be like. You know, this is how different things are. We believe we're still going to be in a land of uncertainty for this amount of time, et cetera, et cetera. Are you comfortable with that? If you are not, it's not the job um, for you. So that, that was definitely a learning. Um, and, and I think the whole communication side, which I know is, feels very obvious, but was quite different again in that remote environment. But we ended up getting in, I think, a really effective cycle of the kind of macro strategic comms and, and the team's comms towards the end of that. Um, you know, and, I, and I personally was recruiting twice weekly with the whole team about everything that was going on and, and being pretty transparent and honest. You know, And this is an environment where, to be frank, people are you know, kind of sitting a year out thinking, is this event even going to go ahead? Um, and, and us trying to reassure them on that, but in an honest way, because honestly, we, we couldn't control the environment at the time. But, you know, those points about <clears throat> government still hugely invested, um, you know, this is going to happen. All of that, I think, just helped reassure people and hopefully started to drive down some of those um, attrition challenges. So, you know, that transparency, that regular communication, that being honest with people at the outset on the role, um, that support network that we had to put in, because we did have a lot of people who started to struggle, um, as, as every business did in that environment. So wrapping that support around them, giving people time if they needed it, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, it really laid, it really laid bare, I think, um, that, that mantra that you hear regularly, that businesses are only as good as their people, right? That, that this was the environment that, that genuinely proved that. And, and, and for me, very much laid bare the importance of investing time, resource, support, um, and, and uh, as I say, in a communication strategy to make sure your team felt that they were part of the, the solution and not, um, you know, not potentially part of the problem. And then in amongst all of that, all of that focus on the team and supporting the team, how did you approach that as an individual? How did you find managing that incredible amount of pressure and uncertainty in a challenging environment? <coughs> Yeah, I mean, look, I, I have this CEO title, but I, I don't view myself as being an individual leader. You know, we I, I had an incredibly effective senior team who met very regularly and supported me. I had a really, really incredible chair and board who, who did the same. And then I've got a number of stakeholders who I could lean on as well. So I was very blessed with having um, some great people around me, but also some people that you could kind of have open and honest conversations. And the interesting thing I found in COVID was that, you know, you know, I was in regular contact with, you know, the chief executive council or the combined authority or, or the chief consul of the police, and we're all we were all going through exactly the same challenges. So, you know, we would go out for informal dinners regularly, and, and you know, to the fat and, and and understand from each other how we were addressing some of these things. And a lot of those leaders were far more experienced than I was, so I was, you know, really lucky to get the benefit of their insight. Um, and 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 they were also investing in the projects, so we you know wanted to support me and make sure the organising committee was in, was in a good place, recognising we were probably the one organisation that was growing and changing um, so quickly. So yeah, I wasn't shy around sort of asking for advice and support, and certainly um, all those involved were were very willing to to, to deliver it and, and support me in that, in that as well. 
And as we now know, which you wouldn't have done at that time, the Games, of course, was a fantastic success. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what Games Time looked like for you and the sort of the scale of what was delivered? Yeah, so so look, the, the great thing was just sort of transitioning into games from the pandemic, of course. Actually, I think it moved quite rapidly from a huge threat into a huge opportunity. In so much as we were one of the first multi-sport events that was going to be back and was going to have um, full, full stadia. So I think that helped in so much as we had probably a greater spotlight on us, but also that we, we found certainly in ticket sales it was just this pent up demand for people to get to get back out. So, you know, we were worried when we started selling tickets, which was about a year out. If, if you recall, we started with a local ballot and then we went to a national ballot. And we thought, right, Craigie, people, are people going to buy tickets and they don't even know if this thing's going ahead or if or if it's going to have um, full stadium? And it was the opposite. Demand was through the roof. I think for exactly that reason, people wanted something to look forward to. People perhaps had some. Um, a greater level of discretionary spend because everyone had been locked in their homes. So, you know, we, we knew that there was a demand there. And I, and I uh, thought to myself, as, as soon as this switches to us being confident we can, we can deliver it, I think we're in a great place in terms of support. So that all definitely transpired. And I think, you know, you, you overlaid those full stadia as, as, as we ended up having with a huge number of people who just wanted to come to the city and the region as well. I'm sure even in the early days, probably watched the first couple of days on TV and thought, this is, this is a place to be. So, so, so that, was, that was incredible. From a personal perspective, unfortunately, when you work on the games, you, you, you don't get to enjoy them um, really as much as everybody else, for obvious reasons. I think when I reflect back on doing the CFO role in, in Glasgow, and I, and I said, to my equivalent, David Grady, who did that role in Birmingham, I said, you, you will enjoy these games much more than, than I will. And the, and the reason for that is just because because of the nature of the corporate role, what you find is a lot of your work, because it's non-operational, is pre-games. And then actually you, you probably deal with a whole lot of challenges and issues post-games when suppliers or invoices are coming in and you're reconciling everything, etc. But during the games, it's actually, unless something goes drastically wrong, there's not a huge amount for some of the corporate teams to do. So certainly when I was in Glasgow, I got to see a lot more sport, went to a lot more things, um, and I genuinely enjoyed it. And I hopefully David and maybe Caroline on the legal side as well did, did as well. But those are operational roles. So my operational um, directors, um, Mick and Charles and the ceremonies teams and, and myself in terms of the kind of games time governance and, and, and C3 decision making, et cetera. It's, it's tough. It, you know, it is. There's... Um, there's uh, a, a lot going on. Um, you've got to rely on your teams. Most of the decisions are made at, at, at kind of ground level. You've got to rely on them and, and, and the infrastructure put in place to deliver. Um, but we had some big issues during the games. You know, there was some significant labour issues. The, the labour market was probably in its worst position it had been in for decades. And, you know, we always thought in terms of some of those catering, stewarding, logistics, drivers, other roles that, um, we would be lucky if everybody showed up and we did have some days where there were real challenges so you were involved in a lot of that um, some of it went to the wire a little bit if I'm, if I'm being honest but um, you know, we managed to we managed to deal with that as, as we should have um, so, so yeah the games time experience for me was kind of looking at looking at it from the outside in looking at some of the media coverage knowing it was going well but never really relaxing. So I always say to everybody, my you know my favourite moment was kind of coming towards the end of the closing ceremony because <laughs> you breathe this huge sigh of relief um, and you start to enjoy that ceremony much more than the opening one, knowing what's what's coming in, in, in front of you. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, a huge degree of pride towards the end, as you know, the level of support and and in particular, what I was always sort of personally invested in was. You know, there was a there's a much bigger strategic landscape to the games, which is what does it do for the city and the region. So knowing that the mayor and the council leader, um, were, you know, were getting out of the event what they hoped they would get out of it, and knowing that it would genuinely be transformational, and people would look back and generations and see that hopefully this was a pivotal moment for um for the city and the region was 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 you know the really important thing. So. You know the success of the business and tourism program, the number of people that visited, and the tourism numbers, which were incredible. You know, I walked through, as I'm sure you probably did as well. But towards the last weekend, I walked through Centenary Square, and again, I was, I think, I was walking from Victoria Square to Centenary Square, and it took me about 25 minutes. That the volume of people 
just get stuck in these crowds. So it was th- it was those things, and and then also reflecting on sort of the media coverage and some of the narrative that was going out about the games, but much more importantly about Birmingham and and what a great job it had done, and the people of Birmingham and the volunteer workforce and all of that. So so that that was probably where I got the most pride. There was those sort of days or two after the event when when the kind of glow was there. But I didn't need to worry about some of the operational delivery stuff. And just to give our listeners a sense of some of the scale of what you mean by the operational stuff. So the last number I think you gave for number of staff at the organising committee was 70 as it was sort of heading into the pandemic. Around games time, roughly how many people are directly or indirectly employed around the games? Yeah, so I I think we were certainly north, accredited certainly north of 50,000 people and that and I mean that breaks down you know just short of 2,000 are directly employed within the organizing committee who I have direct authority over but but you've then got the incredible 13 or 14,000 um, volunteers and everyone says volunteers make the games but you know they, they genuinely do and, they, and, and Birmingham was the best example of that I think I've ever seen in terms of enthusiasm welcome um, work ethic to be you know these people aren't paid a lot of them are actually probably paying to be involved because they have to travel there themselves some of them you know take care of their own accommodation but the the enthusiasm of them was just incredible you spoke you spoke to visiting athletes media officials and um, tourists that that was you know that was a common theme as as, as you would expect and then over and above the volunteers there's, there's circa you know 30 to thirty-five thousand um contractors that that are involved in the supply chain. So not directly employed by us, but ultimately um, we engage them through, you know, through a contractual relationship and need to make sure they're, they're performing and, and they're trained appropriately as well. So yeah, it's a huge workforce. I think someone said to me, and I've never fact-checked this, so, so don't hold me to it, but someone said to me, it's the kind of biggest mobilization of people in the West Midlands since, since the Second World War. So, um, so that sounds great. I hope it is true. Um, but as I say, I've not fact-checked that one, so, uh, so don't hold me to it. But it was, yeah, but everyone involved did it, you know, did an incredible job and was, was hugely committed. And as I said earlier, we probably expected more of a lot of those people in, in, in the Birmingham games and events I've seen in the past because of the supply chain and workforce issues. You know, we might have had a bit more resilience and a bit more of contingency in previous events, but, you know, we were asking a lot in, in, the, in these games and people definitely stepped up to the plate. And now we're through the games. What do you want to see as the key ingredients, the legacy of the games? What are you most looking out for? Yeah, well, look, I mean, the, f- the first thing which I think is hugely positive is that uh, there's money there now. So you might have seen, um, Henrietta, that there was an announcement uh, a couple of months ago about the fact that the, the games have been delivered under budget and there's an excess now of £60 million, which the government, and this is real credit to them because... In the current economic circumstances, it, it would have been fully understandable if that money had been swept back into the Treasury pots to deal with a whole raft of other challenges the Council's facing. But great credit to the leadership in the city and the region, who I'm sure we're lobbying hard, and also great credit to the government who have said, no, you know, this is West Midlands money and we're going to keep it and we're going to help, uh, and we're going to use it to help support the legacy. So um, that, that gives, hopefully, um, the civic leaders the tools to deliver what we all hope will, will be a long-lasting legacy. And I think we're starting to see some of that come through. You know, it's obviously multifaceted, but we've got um, already the European Athletics Championships coming coming back to the city. So that's another great use of Alexander Stadium. But again, I think we'll mobilise people, we'll get the city excited. I know the city are looking at an annual kind of cultural festival to, to celebrate the, the dates of the games. And I know a couple of people have been over to investigate that from our team. Um, so knowing them, it will be it will be really special as well. Um, but but more importantly, on those on those two aspects, well, those are events. I think what will come with those events is a much greater infrastructure, hopefully in the city and the region, um, that, that's looking much more at grassroots cultural and sporting activity as well. So Sport England are investing some of that, but I think. Um, you know, the use of Alexander Stadium, the use of those other facilities at Sanwell, etc. Um, and also the governance around the cultural side of things and also the money that's going with that should hopefully start to generate a lot of activity. We've got this incredible army of volunteers and there's already a lot of thinking going on about how we utilise them for a whole raft of things in the city and region, which other places have done very well. I mean, uh, Coventry is a great example, actually, who still have a volunteer workforce from London 2012, which they mobilise at every event. And uh, I think you'll hopefully start to see that spreading across the wider West Midlands. 
as well. Um, you know, the sustainability credentials of the games were great. And I know the combined authority have picked up a whole raft of things that worked well in the games in terms of how people travelled, for example, and how things were powered. And they're looking at how that transitions into a longer term sustainability legacy. And then, of course, the other thing which we haven't talked about today and which you and colleagues were hugely helpful with as well was all of that. How do we generate real social and skills value from the, the you know, from the um, business opportunities that came with the games? And I know some of that money is getting earmarked to make sure that those jobs that we created um, for, for the likes of the Jobs and Skills Academy graduates for the games, we, we can make sure that that continues in terms of its infrastructure and hopefully multiplies in terms of um, that skills creation in the West Midlands, which we all know is a continued challenge. And I know the mayor and uh, the growth company and others are really focused on that. And, and then finally, I, I know some of that money um, is, is going to be channeled to really accelerate the great work that was done in the business and, and tourism programme. So um, I haven't seen the latest information, but certainly talking to Neil a couple of months ago at the, at the growth company, there were a huge number of opportunities created through that business and tourism program in terms of some of the visits they had and the inward bound uh, visitors as well <clears throat> in terms of those organizations coming to be headquartered here um, and, and some of that money is going to hopefully continue that work um, as well as some of the tourism and marketing that, that, that works so well as well so there's there is a plan if anyone's really interested there's you know there's there's a legacy plan published on on the Birmingham 2022 website and, and other websites as well um, but hopefully, you know, that we, uh, we can continue what's been a great year. And, and what I would say as well in that is that um, hopefully, I think, I think maybe even next week, there'll be a publication coming out around the sort of initial economic benefit that the Games has generated simply from the Games themselves. There'll be a wider one later in the year that looks at the, the, the kind of wider activities. So I think that hopefully will demonstrate the value for money that the Games has brought, but also the areas that, uh, you know, have, have really worked effectively and, and, and we can scrutinise those and make sure that the investments, um, you know, continues to be effective going forward. I know certainly on the uh, the legacy side, from our perspective at the Chamber, we've been in touch with our members throughout on their views ahead of, during and after the Games on what impact they see it having on the city region. And the positive sentiment is extraordinary that overwhelming majority of businesses reporting such a positive impact on the region uh, and quite a few reporting a positive impact directly on their businesses as well, which has been fantastic to see. But thinking more yeah, thinking more widely about the legacy of the Games for uh, the Commonwealth Games Federation, how do you feel about some of the reports that the Birmingham 2022 Games has helped revitalise the whole Commonwealth Games format? Yeah, look, I mean, I think I think um, that there is no doubt that that we have, in my personal view, that we, we have enhanced the Commonwealth Games brand. I think, um, you know, Bur Birmingham and the West region feels like the home of the Commonwealth. I think it demonstrated that during the Games, I think. You know, the incredible job the ceremonies teams did, the incredible welcome the athletes got, how it looked on television to international um, broadcast viewers and digital viewers was, was quite incredible. So I know they are delighted with it. Um, I think we've given um, the next games in, in Victoria a real challenge to, to live up to it. The last time I spoke to their chief exec was pre-Christmas and they were racking their brains about what their bull was going to be, you know, what the equivalent of the of the bull was going to be. So they they, they came over, absolutely loved it, um, convinced them they'd invested in some an incredible product, but of course given them a real a real challenge now. And I'm I'm just gonna to refer to my phone for a second because I think I've been asked this question a couple of times and I always refer back to this article. Because I think it sums it up really well, that question in two paragraphs. Now, this is an article from The Independent, and it was on the 10th of August, so it's a couple of days after closing. So the final two paragraphs read, The Commonwealth Games has been living on borrowed time for a while now, but the last 12 days breathed fresh life into an event that's too simplistic to, dis to dismiss as an anachronism. Birmingham welcomed the world with warmth and authenticity. A city founded on its heritage of a thousand different trades now speaks with almost as many voices. If you want to look the Commonwealth in the eye, come to Brum. Too often, the hosts of major events scrub themselves of their imperfections. In 2010 in Delhi, they cleared beggars from the streets and erected barriers to hide its slums. Birmingham took the more refreshing view of accept us for who we are and the games were enriched for it. The closing ceremony was foot tapping brilliance from start to finish, leaving them smiling and wanting more was clearly the message Birmingham you played a blinder. So I thought that that sums up, I think, that point about 
has, have we enhanced the brand much better than I could, you know, than I could describe? And that's from, you know, the external national media. And, and interestingly, if you look through those articles kind of through the 9th and 10th of August, they, they are all very similar across the whole broad spectrum of, of the national media. So, um, so I think I think that's a, a, a much better description, as I say, than I could offer. It is such an incredible legacy from the Games, just transforming that perception of Birmingham and the warmth that is now felt for Birmingham as a city off the back of it. It's incredible. Like you say, those paragraphs sum it up perfectly. So on that note then, if you could relive one moment from the Commonwealth Games, what would it be? I think earlier you mentioned your favourite moment was the end of the closing ceremony when you could breathe a sigh of relief. (laughs) But between the the Games itself and the Cultural Festival, are there any moments you're like, if I could go back and relive that again, that would be the one? Yeah. Can I give you a couple? Because mm-hmm. um, I think it's always fair. I'm always very conscious that we've got a huge number of people working on the cultural side and the sporting side. And I think that the events, you know, much better for the fact both of those are integrated. So, you know, if I start from maybe two in the cultural side, the, the first being, and I don't know if you got along, but we, the very first show of the, the cultural festival um, was, in, was in Centenary Square. Um, and it was a huge spectacle, almost sort of the Soleil type type spectacle, um, and 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 I think really opened that incredibly well. But the but the bit that stuck for me actually was I was watching it, and um, we had a program that ran alongside the cultural festival, which was about you know very much supporting um, young people, primarily with a disability or from disadvantaged backgrounds, to be trained in the performing arts. So we took these young kids on a kind of fourteen month journey. Um, and, and I just recall in that kind of opening festival show, um, seeing them at the end when everybody was getting a huge round of applause and, and, and a good number of them crying with their carers, carers or, with, or with their parents and um, crying through just, you know, sheer off what they had achieved. And I think they then went on to, um, to perform in the opening ceremony as well. So that for me was an incredible highlight because I think it showed both the spectacle alongside the, the real change that the games can deliver. Um, and, the, and the other point, I think, which you would expect me probably to see on the cultural side was the kind of the, the, the impact of the bull. Um, and and, and I'd, I'd obviously seen the bull in some of the rehearsals and seen it get, kind of getting brought to life. But the little moment I remember was I actually, after the opening ceremony, I actually had to work very late for a variety of reasons, just for things that were challenging the next day. And I, and I was walking back from the office through Centenary Square. And so at five in the morning, I saw this bull driving along, <laughs> driving along the streets as cars were kind of going, what, what on earth? Because that was it getting transitioned into um, Centenary Square. So it's an interesting moment that because I had no idea the impact it was then going to have um, by that relocation. So that was my kind of that was my kind of ceremonial and, and cultural highlights. But Sport-wise, I'll, I'll I'll put my Scottish hat back on and 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 say that you know I I was lucky enough to be in Alexander Stadium when Elise McCaughan ran that ten thousand meters with with her mum in the stadium and um, that was a huge highlight not not just from a from from me being a Scotsman but actually what what I think it, it really did was 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 probably the the maximum atmospheric point for sport in the games where I've never seen for those last two laps noise anywhere anything like it in a stadium and support for for an individual so you know that that again kind of brought to life the efforts that everybody had put into in particular the city getting that venue ready and what a spectacular what a spectacular venue and atmosphere it was and that kind of moment I think brought all of that to life. And on the Birmingham side, you know, you mentioned when you started this journey, Birmingham wasn't really a, a city that you're particularly familiar with. Um, but now, having gone through this experience, having seen so many different facets of Birmingham in the wider region, what would you say are the main selling points for this place? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I'll start off the answer to that from a personal perspective. Do you know, I, I arrived in the city, I, I felt within three weeks of arriving in the city, yeah, almost like a resident. I was so well, I was so welcomed. And you know, part of that might be the privilege of me having having the job that I did, but the, you know, there was a lot of people not to be named here who would informally, you know, take take me out to restaurants, take me walks around the city, really introduce me. So, to, you know, like you know that that welcoming side, which can be extended into everything I've described from the volunteers and the people. But um, you know, I really like the fact, and you hear it a lot, that people talk about you know, Brummies um, has been reasonably humble and quite modest and not willing to shout about the city. I, c- I kind of like that. Um, and I think the games did the shouting for them, but I think that 
that modest side's fantastic. I think the, the people's a huge asset, but I also think, you know, there's a real practical, huge benefits you can see in the city that, that are going to, no doubt, um, lead to huge benefit going through. You know, the transportation links, the location of the city, the transformation generally that the city's gone through, I think it looks now incredible. I, again, you know, in the journey I've been, the city's completely different from when I arrived physically to, to, to where we are now. And, um, and and again, great credit to everybody involved in that. But, you know, it looks like a modern 21st century incredible city. Um, and then the one you hear all the time is, is and, and you heard in that article, is, is you know, that diversity and, and, and it being a Commonwealth city, it being a young city, um, that feels like a really vibrant, you know, atmosphere around the city. I, I used to go out regularly, you know, in, in the evenings, even just for walks, actually around the city and there's just an energy and um you know i think i think going forward um and and we've maybe seen it in other places but i'm hoping the games is that catalyst for for what the leader and the mayor and others are now describing as this golden um you know this golden decade and um hs2 will inevitably help the, the great work that, that you and the team are doing the chambers in terms of business support the new the new businesses that are coming to locate um here in birmingham it just feels like the place to be and interestingly, you know, I'm I'm sitting in Scotland at the moment, and and um, the amount of people that have come up to me over the last few months when I've been up here, um, and saying that they, you know, they weren't that aware of Birmingham, or they'd only visited once or twice, or they'd been down for business five years ago, and had either come to the games or watched the games um, on the TV, and had plans to go back, or had completely changed their perceptions, um, is incredible. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing how how you know, that kind of continues and, uh, you know, really positive about it all. Fantastic. And what's next for you? You know, you mentioned that where the organising committee is now, it's sort of that wind down phase, that concluding contracts, you know, getting everything tidied up. What's your next challenge going to be? Yeah, I don't know. Job centre at the moment, I think. So uh, I've I've, uh, I've got, what have I got? Probably about eight, eight weeks left. Uh, hopefully we we get everything sorted out in that period. I think generally it's going quite well, and we hand the company over to a liquidator. Um, and I'm doing a couple of little project things with with government, which I'll continue to do. And I think probably um, I'll go in one of two directions. I might do some consultancy advisory type stuff um, for a while. Um, hopefully a little bit less intense, um, and and also gives me the opportunity to work on a few different things. But also maybe buys me time to wait for hopefully the right role to come along. Um, the real challenge always in this environment is is just location. So I, I love these big events. I love sporting type roles, but it's very often hard to find ones that are that, that are near home or even in the UK. So um, I might find myself having to do a little bit more travel, but at the same time, hopefully a bit more balance as well. So we will see. Ide- ideally, another big major event, uh, or as I say, or advising on them for a little while um, before that comes along. Fantastic. And uh, when you look back over your career, we're going to do a couple of reflective questions now to wind us off as we come to the the end of today's podcast. But when you look back over that that whole journey that you've been through, are there any leaders or individuals that have inspired you along the way? Yeah, look, I've been I've been hugely um, blessed with working with some with with some incredible people, um, and probably. The, the, the few examples that I'll give are, are, are all related to the two major events, the two Commonwealth Games. I think my, my chairman in Glasgow, um, chap called Lord Smith of Kelvin, he was a very experienced um, businessman and, and, and was the chair of three or four FTSE 100 companies. And I, I was really lucky that he kind of took me under his wing in a kind of mentorship, mentee type relationship. He, his background was, was a chartered accountant as well. So... Um, he opened a lot of doors, but actually gave me a lot of wise counsel. Um, was very honest, you know, in board meetings if things had gone well, he would tell you, but he would be quick to tell you if there was issues as well, which I like, you know, he was really honest. Um, and and to this day, in fact, I'm sharing emails with him just yesterday. To this day, he, he continues to provide me with with advice, and 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 uh, he's definitely been a, a someone who's been hugely influential in my career. But actually, um, a, a very similar thought. For, for, for John Crabtree, who uh, Sir John Crabtree, I should now say actually, um, who you know well, Henriette, who's a past president, I believe, of, of of the chamber as well, and 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 John is a hugely humble, down to earth person who doesn't necessarily like the limelight, but does a huge amount of work 
behind the scenes for, for the region, both in his lieutenancy and his other roles. You know, he genuinely cares about the city and the region. And I think um, he, he was an incredible chair here as well because he, he very much let me get on with get on with my job and recognised I had some of that practical experience. But what he brought to the table was a passion, a huge knowledge of the region, and very much held the organisation and the partners to account on longer term legacy and delivery. So everything we were doing for the Games, his first question would always be, well, how does this help Birmingham or how does this help the, the West Midlands and its people? So, um, you know, in terms of where business is going and that much greater focus on wider societal good and sustainability and, and giving back, you know, he, he couldn't be anyone better um, in terms of giving me some real insight into you know into how he operated um, and I mentioned some of the wider stakeholders the list too long but I've learned a lot from a lot of very good leaders in the West Midlands and um, and that's hopefully I, mean, I didn't mention it earlier but hopefully one of the legacies we leave here is how well this project integrated public sector bodies in particular and the private sector actually across across the region how do you replicate those relationships going forward perhaps move away from which all cities see some of those adversarial and challenging relationships that some organizations have um, so we proved that it's effective in the game so uh, you know can we keep that going in other projects and, and, and create much greater you know kind of synergies and, and organizations working together going forward and i have to say a huge congratulations to both you and john for being recognized in the, the <laughs> king's new year's honors how did it feel to receive that honor yeah, you can imagine I've been asked this quite a few, quite a bit over the last couple of weeks. I'm I'm, I'm actually a little embarrassed by it, and and, and the reason for that is, um, you know, we talked earlier about fifty thousand people being involved in the games. The, the number of people that it takes to put this event on is quite incredible. So um, it's a, and and ultimately it's a personal honour to me, right? So that doesn't quite feel right. Everyone I speak to say, well, you know, clearly it's reflective of everyone involved, but. Um, so, so a little bit embarrassed, obviously hugely honoured. Mum and dad think it's the greatest thing ever, but for their generation, it really resonates, doesn't it? Um, so yeah, pr- proud and a little embarrassed is probably how I'd sum it up. Oh, a huge congratulations, I can say, hugely well-deserved. And we talked earlier about the pressures that were underway at various points during the Commonwealth Games. I have to say, whenever I saw you out and about, you seemed so cool, calm and collected, you'd have never <laughs> known. <laughs> Um, I have one final question for you now, Ian, which was, if you could share just one piece of advice for an aspiring chief executive, what would it be? Yeah, good good question. Um, Look, I think firstly, and I've probably covered a little little bit of that, but I think that whole um, getting that organisational culture right um, was a big learning for for me in this journey. And I think, you know, there's nothing that beats honesty, integrity and regular communication um, and I think sometimes you get swept and in particular in the private sector of course we're trying to make money that's the purpose of the businesses but but I think the the, the two are so aligned that you know I, I've just found that um, not just for myself but watching my other leaders and my senior management team who I've learned a lot from as well you know the, the, their ability to mobilize their teams primarily through those three things you know that that kind of regular communication that um, you know that that honesty when even when things are tough and, and that honest feedback when people perhaps aren't performing um, g- genuinely people respond to that so I think you know you get those things right the cultural will naturally evolve and become positive and then I think just the second point again we just alluded to it there is you know think thinking about the kind of wider good I think there is no doubt business success going forward um, will, will be fully aligned to to, to that kind of wider societal benefit as well. And we see it, even just some of the commercial sides and the sponsorship elements that came along with the games and, and, and looking at what organisations were focused on, you know, think, thinking about how, how you can do, do right in terms of, of, of the planet, in terms of some of that societal skills development, in terms of, you know, community impact, all, all of those things, I think, Will, will only and rightly so become more and more important as time as time goes on. So I think those are the two areas now I think feel most relevant. Get, getting that business culture right, making sure it's the right place that, that people want to work and you'll get good people naturally gravitating to you. You know, and secondly, make yourself part of your, your local community. Where are you headquartered? Where, where are you uh, doing business? And, and, and maybe give a bit back as well. 
Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Ian, and for sharing your absolutely fascinating and quite unique experience in leadership. Now, for all those listening, do remember to subscribe to CEO Stories wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on social media at GRB Ham Chambers on Twitter uh, or Greater Birmingham Chambers of Commerce on LinkedIn. Thank you.